0: CHAPTER Nine, THE WHITE MAN'S BURDEN Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace. Fill full the mouth of famine, and bid the sickness cease. Rudyard Kipling, The White Man's Burden, 1897 In 1984, following Dr. Robert Gallo's notorious press conference, Dr. Fauci promised the world an AIDS vaccine forthwith. Delivering a functioning AIDS immunization would, of course, be the most persuasive debunking of the Duesbergians and other critics of the HIV-AIDS hypothesis. Finally, Dr. Fauci assured the global press, given the fact that we now have the virus in our hands, it is quite possible, in fact, it's inevitable that we will develop a vaccine for AIDS. Margaret Heckler told the media scrum, We hope to have a vaccine ready for testing in about two years. Heckler was off the mark by a third of a century and counting. In the intervening decades, the federal government spent well over half of a trillion dollars on AIDS. Dr. Fauci has dedicated much of that moolah to his quest for an elusive vaccine to immunize people against HIV. Dr. Fauci pumped our money into nearly 100 vaccine candidates, with none of these coming even close to the finish line. All these disappointments never darkened Dr. Fauci's buoyant optimism that he will soon collar that retreating horizon. For a decade, Oklahoma's U.S. Senator Tom Coburn, M.D., occupied front-row seats in Congressional and Senate health committees during Dr. Fauci's annual gallivants to Capitol Hill. By 2010, Coburn had wearied at the NIAID director's bootless promises of the imminent delivery of his quixotic jab. When, on May 18th, Dr. Fauci returned to the Senate hearing room to tout significant progress in HIV vaccine research, the normally taciturn Dr. Coburn finally exploded. He lambasted Dr. Fauci for deliberately deceiving lawmakers and accused his fellow physician of hoodwinking Congress into approving appropriations with no purpose beyond sustaining his bureaucracy. Most scientists involved in AIDS research believe that an HIV vaccine is further away than ever, he said. It had taken years of Dr. Fauci's ritualistic pilgrimages for Coburn to recognize with indignant clarity, that attempted HIV vaccines are an ATM for NIH, whether they work or not. From an institutional standpoint, none of Dr. Fauci's failed experiments were, after all, failures. They each resulted in massive transfers of public lucre to Dr. Fauci's pharma partners and sustaining funding for NIAID's laboratories and PIs the only true failure at NIAID would be a shrinking workforce. This verity remains utterly obscure to the dewy-eyed press, which faithfully applauds each of Dr. Fauci's Groundhog Day encores. In 2019, nearly a decade after Coburn's remonstrance and only a few months before the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Fauci made a surprise announcement he finally had a working HIV vaccine. While the inoculation had demonstrated a bare-bones 30% efficacy in human trials in Thailand, data from the Phase three trial in South Africa looked promising, and NIAID was getting teed up to test the vaccine on Americans. Dr. Fauci added some deflating caveats. While his new vaccine didn't prevent transmission of AIDS, the nimble technocrat jauntily predicted that intrepid souls who took the jab would find that when they did get AIDS, the symptoms would seem to be much reduced. So confident was Dr. Fauci of the media's slavish credulity that he assumed correctly that he'd never need to answer the many questions raised by this feverish gibberish. That entire odd proposition received Zero critical press commentary. His success at slapping lipstick on this donkey and selling it to the world as a thoroughbred may have emboldened his ruse a year later of placing similar cosmetics on the COVID vaccines that likewise neither prevent disease nor preclude transmission. A Parade of Horribles The 30 year decampment of journalistic scrutiny. Means that there is still no coherent public narrative chronicling Dr. Fauci's futile quest for his inevitable AIDS vaccine, much less accountability. Industry and government scientists have instead shrouded the scandalous saga in secrecy, subterfuge, and prevarication, obscuring a thousand calamities and a sea of tears deserving its own book. Every meager effort to research the debacle on Google, PubMed, news sites, and published clinical trial data yields only shocking new atrocities, a grim, repetitive parade of horribles, heartbreaking tragedies, entrenched institutional arrogance and racism, broken promises, vast expenditures of squandered treasure, and the recurring chicanery of Anthony Fauci, Bob Gello, and Bill Gates. It's a darker version of Groundhog Day devoid of humor, irony, wisdom, or redemption. It will be an easier read if I touch on only a few random lowlights of the painful saga. Gallo Redux In 1991, as part of a settlement ending years of litigation, Bob Gallo finally admitted that he had stolen the HIV virus from Montagnier. He was hardly chastened. On April 14th, John Crutzen reported in the Chicago Tribune that one of Gallo's experiments with an HIV vaccine had killed three AIDS patients in Paris the previous year. NIH had launched the project before handing it off to Gallo and his trusty henchman, Daniel Zagouri, who tested the concoction on volunteers in France and, predictably, an African country, this time Zaire his cronies at the National Cancer Institute had granted Gallo's experiments expedited review approval. How expedited? Just 25 days. The patients died after Gallo's team inoculated them with an HIV vaccine derived from cowpox. NIH scientists formulated the preparation from vaccinia, a virus that causes cowpox in bovines, into which the government scientists genetically inserted a fragment of the HIV virus. Apparently, the cowpox remained infectious, and three of their 19 Paris volunteers immediately developed vaccinia, a frequently fatal necrosis, which caused acute lesions and an expanse of hardened, swollen, purplish-red skin around the victims' injection sites as the disease devoured their flesh. As is typical of AIDS vaccine research, the NIH scientists cashed the atrocity. Neither Gallo nor Zaguri reported the deaths. Instead, Gallo vaunted the trial as a great success in The Lancet's July 21, 1990 edition, audaciously claiming that there had been no deaths and no complications or discomfort among any of those to whom he administered the preparation. One of Dr. Gallo's casualties was a 42 year old classic literature professor, regarded as a brilliant Egyptologist, who succumbed March 5, 1990, more than four months before Gallo's article appeared. A second volunteer, a 36 year old Paris University librarian, died on July 6, weeks before Gallo published his article. Friends described Gallo's two victims as healthy and vibrant in the days and weeks immediately preceding their deaths. It was unimaginable, a co-worker said of the robust professor, that he could have died six weeks later. A longtime friend of Dr. Gallo's third victim, who died on October 1, 1990, asked Zagori's principal assistant, Dr. Odile Picard, whether the experimental vaccine may have caused the destructive lesions that the coroner detected on the victim's brain during autopsy. Picard assured him the vaccines were not at fault, adding, We don't know what this is. A month after this conversation, Picard delivered another paper, also signed by Gallo and Zagouri, at an international AIDS meeting in Paris, the Colloque de Saint-Garde. Here again, Picard mentioned nothing about the three deaths, telling her colleagues that the vaccinia preparation had shown itself safe in patients. Perhaps she meant safe for those patients who survived. André Bouet, the distinguished French geneticist and secretary to France's National Committee on Medical Ethics, who approved the vaccine trials in 1987, complained that Gallo never informed his panel that any of the subjects had died. Officials of assistance publique, the municipal hospital system in Paris, grumbled that Gallows team also neglected to tell them of the three fatalities. French officials only learned of the deaths from physicians who became suspicious at hospitals where Gallo's team had shipped their ailing recruits to die. NIH managers also protested that Gallo had not come clean about the deaths. One functionary called Gallo's omission very troubling. NIH records show that neither Gallo nor any of his NIH Confederates informed the Office of Protection from Research Risks about the body count. Federal law requires that OPRR approve human experimentation and that researchers report adverse events including, of course, the most adverse event. In February, citing multiple violations of federal regulations by Gallo and his team on both sides of the Atlantic, the OPRR abruptly halted the experiment. Channeling his mentor's hallmark chutzpah, Zaguri, after submitting the Chipper Lancet article, applied for a patent on the deadly vaccine technology called methods of inducing immune responses to the aids virus with Zagori listing himself as an inventor in the application once again the omerta held there was no investigation no accountability and no word of what sort of injuries the volunteers in the zaire arm of the study may have suffered characteristically gallo was unembarrassed unbowed and undaunted by this latest setback The bought and bullied virology community stayed silent about a scandal that would have implicated NIH and provoked unwanted scrutiny of the HIV orthodoxies. Five years later, Gallo left NCI and established the Institute for Human Virology, IHV, with his two longtime cronies, William Blattner, who served for 22 years under Gallo as director of viral epidemiology at NCI and Robert Redfield, a military doctor and researcher who shared Gallo's lifelong obsession with HIV and his ethical lacunae. Dr. Robert Redfield Many Americans will recognize Redfield as Donald Trump's CDC director during the 2020 COVID pandemic. Dr. Redfield and his faithful sidekick, Dr. Deborah Burks. Served with Dr. Fauci on Trump's coronavirus task force. Both Redfield and Burks were former Army medical officers who, in the 1980s and 1990s, led the military's AIDS research, a specialty that seems like a magnet for hucksters and quacks. U.S. military documents show that in 1992, Redfield and Burks, his then assistant, both serving at Walter Reed in Washington, Published inaccurate data in the New England Journal of Medicine, claiming that an HIV vaccine they helped develop and tested on Walter Reed patients was effective. They both must have known the vaccine was worthless. In 1992, an Air Force medical office accused Redfield of engaging in a systematic pattern of data manipulation, inappropriate statistical analyses, and misleading data presentation in an apparent attempt to promote the usefulness of the GP160 AIDS vaccine. A specially convened Air Force tribunal on scientific fraud and misconduct concluded that Redfield's misleading or possibly deceptive information seriously threatens his credibility as a researcher and has the potential to negatively impact AIDS research funding for military institutions as a whole. His allegedly unethical behavior creates false hope and could result in premature deployment of the vaccine. The tribunal recommended investigation by a fully independent outside investigative body. Under threat of court-martial, loss of his medical license, and possible imprisonment, Dr. Redfield confessed to angry DOD interrogators and to the tribunal that his analyses were faulty and deceptive. He agreed to correct them and to publicly admit the vaccine was worthless at an upcoming AIDS conference at which he was scheduled to speak in July 1992. Perhaps it was the grandeur of the hall, the microphone, and the audience that conspired to weaken his resolve. Instead of retracting his falsehood, he boldly repeated his fraudulent claims at this and two subsequent international HIV conferences. As astonished prosecutors watched, he then brazenly parroted his debunked perjuries in testimony before Congress, swearing that his vaccine cured HIV. Redfield's bold gambit worked. Bamboozled by Redfield's brazen ballyhoo, Congress immediately appropriated $20 million to the military to support Redfield and Burks's research project, enraged military prosecutors wanted to court-martial Redfield. But as Public Citizen complained in a 1994 letter to the Congressional Committee's chairman, Henry Waxman, the dedicated budget hikes promised by Congress prompted the Army to kill the investigation, silence its own prosecutors, and whitewash Redfield's misdeeds. By snatching triumph from the jaws of career-ending disaster, Redfield had pulled off the perfect crime. The bold flim flam catapulted Burks and Redfield into their stellar careers as top federal health officials. Whatever other lessons he learned from the episode, recklessness and mendacity continued to be Redfield's go to strategies. Gallo's partnership with Redfield became a gold mine for both men. Dr. Gallo told me in a May 11, 2021 email. That the Institute of Human Virology's annual budget, the IHV, is in excess of $100 million. A majority of this funding is from PEPFAR. President George W. Bush created PEPFAR in 2003 at Dr. Fauci's urging to coordinate AIDS assistance from all the various federal government, civilian, and military sources. Since 2014, PEPFAR's administrator has been Deborah Burks, who simultaneously served on the board of the Bill Gates-backed Global Fund. In 2017, the IHV's annual report boasted that these two Quexalvers had won over $600 million in grants, much of it from NIH and Bill Gates, since they cemented their lucrative partnership. They seem to have spent the bulk of that loot Experimenting with failed HIV drugs and vaccines on black people, including 20,000 residents of Washington and Baltimore, and 1.3 million misfortunates from Africa and the Caribbean. Gallo and Redfield's IHV partnership was a good bet. They had an academic affiliation with the University of Maryland, their own nonprofit to launder grant money from their old NIH, NIAID, and NCI cronies, and a for-profit spin-off that would allow them to monetize their taxpayer-funded discoveries. Their former accomplices at NIH were pumping $200 million annually into the HIV vaccine boondoggle. Moreover, Redfield had an inside track through Burks and through his military confederates to the vast Pentagon budgets for bioweapons and infectious disease. Those connections yielded plenty of federal dough to keep everyone in the chips. Furthermore, in 1998, a new HIV funder appeared, one with deep pockets and a shared obsession with vaccines. That year, the William H. Gates Foundation announced a nine-year $500 million plan to fund AIDS vaccine development through Gates' International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, IAVI, the predecessor organization to the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, GAVI. IAVI's president, Seth Berkley, Gates's faithful and extravagantly compensated minion, said the plan would fund multiple efficacy trials of AIDS vaccine candidates in developing countries. If any of the vaccines worked even reasonably well on sub-Saharan Africans, they could then presumably be tested in Western countries. Despite Redfield's well-publicized history as a charlatan and pretender, President Donald Trump put him in charge of the CDC at a time when the agency's overarching mission was promoting COVID vaccines. Trump also elevated Burks, a lifelong protege to both Redfield and Anthony Fauci, and confidant to Bill Gates. These three vaccine mountebanks, Redfield, Burks, and Fauci, led the White House coronavirus task force and steered America's COVID response during the first year of the pandemic. The trio, none of whom ever treated a COVID patient, adopted controversial strategies to confine the nation under house arrest, shut down the global economy, deny the public access to early treatment and life-saving therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, excite persistent public terror through the broadcasts of deliberately exaggerated death and case counts, and repeatedly tell the world that the only path back to normal is a miraculous vaccine. With minimal scientific support, they imposed draconian quarantine, mask, and social distancing mandates, purposefully or accidentally inducing a species of mass psychosis called Stockholm Syndrome, wherein hostages become grateful to their captors, convinced that the only path to survival is unquestioning obedience. The Gates-Fauci Bromance Two years after Gates announced IAVI, he summoned Dr. Fauci to Seattle to propose a partnership that, two decades later, would have profound impacts on humanity. Dr. Fauci first met Bill and Melinda Gates during that Seattle trip. Ostensibly for a conversation about combating tuberculosis, the Microsoft billionaire had invited the NIAID chief to a muster of global health honchos at his Forty thousand square foot, one hundred twenty seven million dollar mansion rising from forty wooded acres on the banks of Lake Washington. After dinner, Gates called Fauci from the herd and corralled him into his spectacular blue domed library overlooking the lake. Fauci remembered Melinda was showing everyone on a tour of the house, and he said, Can I have some time with you in my library? This amazingly beautiful library. And we sat down, and it was there that he said, Tony, you run the biggest infectious disease institute of the world, and I want to be sure the money I spend is well spent. Why don't we really get to know each other? Why don't we be partners? Over the next two decades, that partnership would metastasize to include pharmaceutical companies, military and intelligence planners, and international health agencies, all collaborating to promote weaponized pandemics and vaccines and a new brand of corporate imperialism rooted in the ideology of biosecurity. That project would yield Mr. Gates and Dr. Fauci unprecedented bonanzas in wealth and power and have catastrophic consequences for democracy and humanity. The Microsoft Monopoly Influence peddling fueled Bill Gates' drive to power from the outset. Gates came from a wealthy family. His great-grandfather made a fortune in banking and left Bill a trust fund worth millions in today's dollars. After dropping out of Harvard in 1975, Gates leveraged his passion for software engineering to launch Microsoft in an era when most Americans still used typewriters. At the time, his mother, Mary Gates, a prominent Seattle businesswoman, sat on the United Way board alongside then-IBM chairman John Opel. In 1980, IBM was looking to recruit a software concern to develop an operating system for its personal computer. Mary Gates persuaded Opel to take a chance on her son. That intervention propelled Gates's fledgling firm into the big leagues, and made Gates a billionaire within two decades. Gates's closest boyhood friend and the Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen described Gates in his 2011 book Idea Man, A Memoir, as a sarcastic bully who in 1982 schemed to oust him and steal his share of their company. Back at work following a bout with cancer, an anemic Allen depleted by radiation and chemotherapy, overheard Gates conniving with Microsoft's new manager, Steve Ballmer, to dilute Allen's stake. Allen recalled bursting in and shouting, This is unbelievable. It shows your true character once and for all. Declining Gates' $5 a share buyout offer, Allen left Microsoft with his 25% stake intact, becoming a billionaire when the company went public in 1986. In May 1998, the Department of Justice and 20 state attorneys general filed antitrust charges against Microsoft, accusing Gates Company of illegally thwarting efforts by consumers to install competing software on its Windows-based computers. The DOJ asked the federal trial court in Seattle to fine Gates a record million dollars a day for antitrust violations. Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson ruled that Microsoft had violated the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act prohibitions, outlawing monopolies and cartels, saying, Microsoft placed an oppressive thumb on the scale of competitive fortune thereby effectively guaranteeing its continued dominance in the relevant market. Judge Jackson ordered Microsoft to divide itself in halves and divest either its operating system or its software arm. An appeals court overturned that decision. In a settlement, the DOJ abandoned its drive to break up the company, and Microsoft agreed to pay an anemic $800,000 fine and to share computing interfaces with competing firms. Aside from the financial cost, the litigation had blighted Gates's reputation. Judge Jackson complained that Gates's testimony was evasive and forgetful, and observed that he has a Napoleonic concept of himself and his company, an arrogance that derives from power and unalloyed success with no leavening hard experience, no reverses. The public had seen enough of the trial, and of Gates' revealing depositions, to share Judge Jackson's revulsion. An online group called SPOGGE gained widespread popularity. The acronym stands for Society for Preventing Gates from Getting Everything. Class action lawsuits filed in 2000 against the company for gross discrimination against African-American workers and for including racially charged messages in its software further blighted Gates's pockmarked public image. Legendary plaintiff's lawyer Willie Gary complained that Microsoft had a plantation mentality when it comes to treating African-American workers and observed that there are glass ceilings and walls for African-American workers at Microsoft. Gary settled the case for $97 million. Two years later, European regulators levied a $1.36 billion fine against Microsoft, the highest penalty in EU history. Gates reacted to snowballing popular disgust, by lobbying Congress to slash the Justice Department's budget, and by hiring an army of PR firms to soften his image as a ruthless and duplicitous king-baby robber baron. As part of a concerted offensive to recast his public persona, Gates and his wife formed a charity, the Children's Vaccine Program, with an impressive $100 million donation. The Rockefeller-Gates Nexus A century earlier, America's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller, had blazed his own wildly successful exit ramp from public loathing, bad press, and antitrust prosecution by launching a medical philanthropy. John D. Rockefeller's consigliere, Frederick Taylor Gates, served as John D.'s chief business confidant and philanthropic advisor. Frederick Gates helped Rockefeller structure his foundation, advising the mogul that judicious disposal of his fortune might also blunt further inquiry into its origins. Practically from his nativity, Bill Gates began coordinating his own foundation's giving with the Rockefeller Organization. In 2018, Bill Gates made the salient observation that everywhere our foundation went, we discovered the Rockefeller Foundation had been there first. At the 20th century's dawn, Rockefeller's sanguinary maneuvering, including bribery, price-fixing, corporate espionage, and creating shell companies to conduct illegal activities, had won his standard oil company control of 90% of U.S. oil production and made him the richest man in world history, with a net worth of over half a trillion in today's dollars. Senator Robert Lafayette excoriated Rockefeller as the greatest criminal of the age. The oil magnate's father, William Devil Bill Rockefeller, was a marauding con artist who supported his family by posing as a doctor and hawking snake oil, opium elixirs, patent medicines, and other miracle cures. In the early 1900s, as scientists discovered pharmaceutical uses for refinery byproducts, John D. saw an opportunity to capitalize on the family's medical pedigree. At that time, nearly half the physicians and medical colleges in the United States practiced holistic or herbal medicine. Rockefeller and his friend Andrew Carnegie, the big steel robber baron, dispatched educator Abraham Flexner on a cross-country tour to catalog the status of America's 155 medical colleges and hospitals. The Rockefeller Foundation's 1910 Flexner Report recommended centralizing America's medical schooling, abolishing miasma theory, and reorienting these institutions according to germ theory, which held that germs alone caused disease, and the pharmaceutical paradigm that emphasized targeting particular germs with specific drugs rather than fortifying the immune system through healthy living, clean water, and good nutrition. With that narrative in hand, Rockefeller financed the campaign to consolidate mainstream medicine, co-opt the burgeoning pharmaceutical industry, and shudder its competition. Rockefeller's crusade caused the closure of more than half of American medical schools, Fostered public and press scorn for homeopathy, osteopathy, chiropractic, nutritional, holistic, functional, integrative, and natural medicines, and led to the incarceration of many practicing physicians. Miasma versus germ theory. Miasma theory emphasizes preventing disease by fortifying the immune system through nutrition, and by reducing exposures to environmental toxins and stresses. Miasma exponents posit that disease occurs where a weakened immune system provides germs an enfeebled target to exploit. They analogize the human immune system to the skin of an apple. With the skin intact, the fruit will last a week at room temperature and a month if refrigerated but even a small injury to the skin triggers systemic rot within hours as the billions of opportunistic microbes thronging on the skin of every living organism colonize the injured terrain. Germ theory aficionados, in contrast, blame disease on microscopic pathogens. Their approach to health is to identify the culpable germ and tailor a poison to kill it. Miasmists complain that those patented poisons may themselves further weaken the immune system or simply open the damaged terrain to a competitive germ or cause chronic disease. They point out that the world is teeming with microbes, many of them beneficial, and nearly all of them harmless to a healthy, well-nourished immune system. Miasmists argue that malnutrition and inadequate access to clean water are the ultimate stressors that make infectious diseases lethal in impoverished locales. When a starving African child succumbs to measles, the miasmist attributes the death to malnutrition. Germ theory proponents, a.k.a. virologists, blame the virus. The miasmist approach to public health is to boost individual immune response. For better or worse, The champions of germ theory, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch, proved victorious in their fierce decades-long battle with their miasmist rival, Antoine Béchamp. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Will Durant suggests that germ theory found popular purchase by mimicking the traditional explanation for disease, demon possession, giving it a leg up over miasma. The ubiquity of pasteurization and vaccinations are only two of the many indicators of the domineering ascendancy of germ theory as the cornerstone of contemporary public health policy. A one trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry pushing patented pills, powders, pricks, potions, and poisons, and the powerful professions of virology and vaccinology led by little Napoleon himself, Anthony Fauci fortifies the century-old predominance of germ theory. And so, with the microbe theory, the cornerstone was laid for modern biomedicine's basic formula with its monocausal microbial starting point and its search for magic bullets. One disease, one cause, one cure, writes American sociology professor Stephen Epstein. As Dr. Klaus Kuhnlein and Torsten Engelbrecht observe in Virus Mania, the idea that certain microbes, above all fungi, bacteria, and viruses, are our great opponents in battle, causing certain diseases that must be fought with special chemical bombs, has buried itself deep into the collective conscience. Imperialist ideologues find natural affinity with germ theory. A war on germs Rationalizes a militarized approach to public health and endless intervention in poor nations that bear heavy disease burdens. And just as the military industrial complex prospers in war, the pharmaceutical cartel profits most from sick and malnourished populations. On his deathbed, the victorious Pasteur is said to have recanted, Béchamp was right, declaring, The microbe is nothing. The terrain is everything. Miasma theory survives in marginalized yet vibrant pockets among integrative and functional medicine practitioners. And burgeoning science, documenting the critical role of the microbiome in human health and immunity, tends to vindicate Béchamp, and particularly his teachings that microorganisms are beneficial to good health. Kuhnlein and Engelbrecht observe that But even for mainstream medicine, it is becoming increasingly clear that the biological terrain of our intestines, the intestinal flora teeming with bacteria or weighing up to a kilogram in a normal adult human totaling 100 trillion cells, is accorded a decisive role because it is by far the body's biggest and most important immune system. A doctrinal canon of the germ theory credits vaccines for the dramatic declines of infectious disease mortalities in North America and Europe during the 20th century. Anthony Fauci, for example, routinely proclaims that vaccines eliminated mortalities from the infectious diseases of the early 20th century, saving millions of lives. On July 4, 2021, he commented to NBC's Chuck Todd, You know... As the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, it was my responsibility to make sure that we did the science that got us to the vaccines that, as we know now, have already saved millions and millions of lives. Most Americans accept this claim as dogma. It will therefore come as a surprise to learn that it is simply untrue. Science actually gives the honor of having vanquished infectious disease mortalities to nutrition and sanitation. A comprehensive study of this foundational assertion published in 2000 in the high-gravitas journal Pediatrics by CDC and Johns Hopkins scientists concluded, after reviewing a century of medical data, that vaccination does not account for the impressive decline in mortality from infectious diseases in the 20th century. As noted earlier, another widely cited study mckinley and mckinley required reading in virtually every american medical school during the 1970s found that all medical interventions including vaccines surgeries and antibiotics accounted for less than about one percent and no more than 3.5 percent of the dramatic mortality declines the mckinleys presciently warned that profiteers among the medical establishment would seek to claim credit for the mortality declines for vaccines in order to justify government mandates for those pharmaceutical products. Seven years earlier, the world's foremost virologist, Harvard Medical School's Dr. Edward H. Cass, a founding member and first president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America and founding editor of the Journal of Infectious Diseases, rebuked his virology colleagues for trying to take credit for that dramatic decline, scolding them for allowing the proliferation of half-truths, that medical research had stamped out the great killers of the past, tuberculosis, diphtheria, pneumonia, puerperal sepsis, etc., and that medical research and our superior system of medical care were major factors extending life expectancy. Cass recognized that the real heroes of public health were not the medical profession, but rather the engineers who brought us sewage treatment plants, railroads, roads, and highways for transporting food, electric refrigerators, and chlorinated water. I refer you to the Children's Health Defense website for graphs that demonstrate mortalities for virtually all the great killer diseases, infectious and otherwise, Declined with advances in nutrition and sanitation, the most dramatic declines occurred prior to vaccine introduction. These graphs pose an indomitable challenge to germ theory's central dogma and stark support for miasma's approach to medicine. Note the mortality declines occurred in both infectious and non-infectious diseases, irrespective of the availability of vaccines. When the tide is receding from the beach, it is easy to have the illusion that one can empty the ocean by removing the water with a pail. René Dubos. As Drs. Engelbrecht and Kuhnlein observe, epidemics rarely occur in affluent societies because these societies offer conditions, sufficient nutrition, clean drinking water, etc., which allow many people to keep their immune systems so fit that microbes simply do not have a chance to multiply abnormally. As a final side note, it seems to me that a mutually respectful science-based, evidence-based marriage incorporating the best of these two clashing dogmas would best serve public health and humankind. Fauci and Gates, Germ Theory as Foreign Policy The arcane conflict between germ and miasma theorists has important resonance for public health policy in the developing world, where many policy advocates fiercely protest that a dollar spent on food and clean water is far more effective than a dollar spent on vaccines. As we shall see, the Gates-Fauci militarized approach to medicine has precipitated an apocalyptic battle on the African and Asian continents between the two philosophies in a zero-sum game that pits nutrition and sanitation against vaccines in a life-and-death conflict for resources and legitimacy. The historic clash between these warring philosophies offers a useful framework for understanding Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci's approach to public health. In order to assess the effectiveness of their mass vaccination projects, We would need a disciplined accounting that compares health outcomes in vaccinated populations to similarly situated unvaccinated cohorts. This is the kind of accounting that neither of these men has been willing to provide. The facts suggest that it is the absence of such reliable metrics and science based analysis that allows Gates and Fauci to get away with their dubious claims about the efficacy and safety of their prescriptions. Any even-handed examination of the role of immunizations in Africa must acknowledge that mass vaccination programs may serve a larger agenda in which the priorities of power, wealth, and control can eclipse quaint preoccupations with public health. And once again, it was the Rockefeller Foundation that pioneered germ theory as a foreign policy tool. The Triumph of Germ Theory In 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil constituted an unreasonable monopoly and splintered the behemoth into 34 companies that became Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, Amoco, Marathon, and others. Ironically, the breakup increased rather than diminished Rockefeller's personal wealth. Rockefeller donated an additional $100 million from that windfall to his philanthropic front group, the general education board to cement the streamlining and homogenization of medical schools and hospitals in accordance with the pharmaceutical paradigm he simultaneously provided large grants to scientists for identifying the active chemicals in disease curing plants utilized by the traditional doctors whom he had extirpated rockefeller chemists then synthesized and patented petrochemical versions of those molecules. The Foundation's philosophy of a pill for an ill shaped how Americans came to view health care. In 1913, the Patriarch founded the American Cancer Society and incorporated the Rockefeller Foundation. Philanthropic foundations were an innovation of the era and detractors criticized as tax evasion Rockefeller schemed to take a $56 million deduction on his donation of 72,569 shares of Standard Oil to launch a foundation that would give him perpetual control of that donated wealth. A congressional investigation described the foundation as a self-serving artifice posing a menace to the future political and economic welfare of the nation. Congress repeatedly denied Rockefeller a charter. Attorney General George Wickersham denounced the Foundation as a scheme for perpetuating vast wealth and entirely inconsistent with the public interest. To reassure public, politicians, and press of its benign purposes, the Rockefeller Foundation declared its ambition to eliminate hookworm, malaria, and yellow fever. The Rockefeller Sanitary Commission for the Eradication of Hookworm Disease sent teams of doctors, inspectors, and lab technicians to administer deworming medication across 11 southern states. These ambassadors systematically exaggerated the medication's efficacy, glossed over its regular fatalities, and through the graces of Rockefeller's mercenary army of journalists for hire, ignited enough favorable popular interest for the Foundation to justify the proposed expansion into the colonized world. The Rockefeller Foundation launched a public-private partnership with pharmaceutical companies called the International Health Commission, which set about feverishly inoculating the hapless populations of the colonized tropics with a yellow fever jab. The vaccine killed its beneficiaries in droves, and failed to prevent yellow fever. The Rockefeller Foundation quietly dropped the useless vaccine. After the Foundation's star researcher, the yellow fever vaccine's inventor, Hideo Noguchi, succumbed to the disease, likely contracted through careless laboratory exposure. Noguchi's flexible scruples had greased his dicey experimentation on colonized volunteers and fueled his meteoric rise In the ethically barren landscapes of virology. At the time of his death, the New York District Attorney was investigating Noguchi for illegally experimenting on New York City orphans with syphilis vaccines without the consent of their legal guardians. Despite such setbacks, the Rockefeller Foundation's Yellow Fever Project caught the approbatory attention of army planners on the lookout for remedies against the tropical diseases that hamstrung the U.S. military's expanding retinue of equatorial adventures. In 1916, the board's president made an early observation about the utility of biosecurity as a tool of imperialism. For purposes of placating primitive and suspicious peoples, medicine has some advantages over machine guns. The Rockefeller Foundation's carefully heralded public health attainments eclipsed popular revulsion for the many abuses Americans associated with the Standard Oil-Petroleum Empire. After World War I, its patronage of the League of Nations Health Organization gave the Rockefeller Foundation global reach and an impressive cortege of high-level contacts among the international elites. As the century progressed, The Foundation became an exquisitely connected global enterprise, with regional offices in Mexico City, Paris, New Delhi, and Cali. From 1913 to 1951, the Rockefeller Foundation's health division operated in more than 80 countries. The Rockefeller Foundation was the world's de facto authority on how best to manage global diseases with influence dwarfing all other nonprofits or government actors working in the field. The Rockefeller Foundation provided almost half of the budget for the League of Nations Health Organization, LNHO, following its founding in 1922, and populated LNHO ranks with its veterans and favorites. The RF imbued the League with its philosophy, structure, Values, precepts, and ideologies, all of which its successor body, the WHO, inherited at its inauguration in 1948. By the time John D. Rockefeller disbanded the Rockefeller Foundation's International Health Division in 1951, it had spent the equivalent of billions of dollars on tropical disease campaigns in almost 100 countries and colonies. But these projects were window-dressing for the Foundation's more venal preoccupations, according to a 2017 report, U.S. Philanthrocapitalism and the Global Health Agenda. That E-Day fix was opening developing world markets for U.S. oil, mining, pharmaceutical, telecom, and banking multinationals, in which the Foundation and the Rockefeller family were also invested. That white paper made the same complaints against the Rockefeller Foundation that contemporary critics level against the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But the Rockefeller Foundation rarely addressed the most important causes of death, notably infantile diarrhea and tuberculosis, for which technical fixes were not then available and which demanded long-term socially oriented investments, such as improved housing clean water, and sanitation systems. The RF avoided disease campaigns that might be costly, complex, or time-consuming, other than yellow fever, which imperiled the military and commerce. Most campaigns were narrowly construed so that quantifiable targets, insecticide spraying or medication distribution, for example, could be set, met, and counted as successes then presented in business-style quarterly reports. In the process, RF public health efforts stimulated economic productivity, expanded consumer markets, and prepared vast regions for foreign investment and incorporation into the expanding system of global capitalism. Here was a business model tailor-made for Bill Gates. Philanthrocapitalism Gates has dubbed his foundation's operational philosophy Philanthrocapitalism. Here is a stripped-down explanation of how Philanthrocapitalism functions. Bill and Melinda Gates donated $36 billion of Microsoft stock to the BMGF between 1994 and 2020. Very early on, Gates created a separate entity, Bill Gates Investments, BGI, which manages his personal wealth and his foundation's corpus. Renamed BMGI in January 2015 to include Melinda, the company predominantly invests that loot in multinational food, agriculture, pharmaceutical, energy, telecom, and tech companies with global operations. Federal tax laws require the BMGF to give away 7% of its foundation assets annually to qualify for tax exemption. Gates strategically targets BMGF's charitable gifts to give him control of the international health and agricultural agencies and the media, allowing him to dictate global health and food policies so as to increase profitability of the large multinationals in which he and his foundation hold large investment positions. Following such tactics, the Gates Foundation has given away some $54.8 billion since 1994, but instead of depleting his wealth, those strategic gifts have magnified it. Strategic philanthropizing increased the Gates Foundation's capital corpus to $49.8 billion by 2019. Moreover, Gates' personal net worth grew from $63 billion in 2000 to $133.6 billion today. Gates' wealth expanded by $23 billion just during the 2020 lockdowns that he and Dr. Fauci played key roles in orchestrating. In 2017, the Huffington Post observed that the Gates Foundation Blurs the boundaries between philanthropy, business, and nonprofits, and cautions that calling Gates' investment strategy philanthropy was causing the rapid deconstruction of the accepted term. Gates' pharmaceutical investments are particularly relevant to this chapter, since shortly after its founding, his foundation has owned stakes in multiple drug companies. A recent investigation by the nation revealed that the Gates Foundation currently holds corporate stocks and bonds in drug companies like Merck, GSK, Eli Lilly, Pfizer, Novartis, and Sanofi. Gates also has heavy positions in Gilead, Biogen, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Novavax, and Inovio. The Foundation's website candidly declares its mission to Seek more effective models of collaboration with major vaccine manufacturers to better identify and pursue mutually beneficial opportunities. Gates and Fauci, Colonizing the Dark Continent. After sealing their collaboration with a handshake, Gates and Dr. Fauci geared up their vaccine partnership quickly. By 2015, Gates was spending $400 million annually on AIDS drugs, mainly testing them on Africans. If he could prove that an AIDS remedy actually worked in Africa, the subsequent payoff from U.S. and European customers would be astronomical. For Gates, the immediate advantage of his new alliance with Dr. Fauci was clear. The imprimatur of his partnership, with the U.S. government's premier public health khedive, anointed Gates' public health experiments with credibility and gravitas. Moreover, Dr. Fauci was an international power broker controlling a gargantuan bankroll and wielding Brobdingnagian political wallop across Africa. A trusted presidential confidant, Dr. Fauci had made himself the indispensable rainmaker for the river of HIV funding flooding the African continent. Dr. Fauci had, by then, persuaded a succession of U.S. presidents to burnish their humanitarian bona fides by redirecting U.S. foreign aid away from the causes of nutrition, sanitation, and economic development and toward solving Africa's HIV crisis with vaccines and drugs. His success in extracting a $15 billion commitment from George W. Bush in 2003 for AIDS drugs in Africa solidified Dr. Fauci's reputation as a global power broker capable of delivering U.S. dollars to any African potentate who cooperated with his AIDS enterprise. Despite his miserable track record at actually reducing illness over the next decade, He nevertheless persuaded President Bill Clinton in May 1997 to set a new national goal for science by making the cure for African AIDS his JFK moonshot promise. In a speech he delivered at Morgan State University, Clinton said, Today, let us commit ourselves to developing an AIDS vaccine within the next decade. Largely due to Tony Fauci's influence, Clinton would squander billions of taxpayer dollars on this fruitless crusade during his presidency and millions more of corporate and philanthropic contributions through the Clinton Foundation during his twilight years. George W. Bush similarly relied on Dr. Fauci's counsel, diverting $18 billion of the U.S. government's relatively anemic foreign aid contributions to Dr. Fauci's pet global AIDS projects between 2004 and 2008 alone. In 2008, the Journal of the European Molecular Biology Organization published a peer reviewed article examining how the Gates Fauci partnership had skewed NIH funding to reflect Gates's priorities, the grand impact of the Gates Foundation. 60 billion dollars and one famous person can affect the spending and research focus of public agencies. That article showed how following the Gates-Fauci handshake, NIH had shifted 1 billion dollars to Gates's global vaccine programs at a time when overall NIH budget experienced little growth. The article outlines the technical details of the Gates NIH partnership. The Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust funneled their donations through the NIH Foundation, which administers the money, while Gates determines how it is spent. In this way, Gates has cloaked his pet projects with the imprimatur and credibility of the United States government. He has effectively purchased himself an agency directorate. There is little objective evidence that all the treasure has extended or improved the lives of Africans. But every penny accrued to Fauci's reputation as Africa's foreign aid, Golconda. When it came to public health policy in Africa, Dr. Fauci owned the keys to the kingdom. Gates needed Dr. Fauci to unlock the door. Citing Ralph Waldo Emerson's observation that charity can be a wicked dollar. Sociology professor Lindsay Magoey explains that philanthropy can have evil effect when it places its beneficiaries under a boot, rather than recognizing their equal right to foster their own independence, to realize their individuality. Professor Magoey is the author of the 2015 book No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and the prophets of philanthropy. Pharma had designs on Africa. Buona Fauci and Buona Gates donned pith helmets, grasped their machetes, shouldered their weaponized vaccines and toxic antivirals, and made themselves the twenty-first century versions of the crusading European explorers Burton and Speak, bestowing the blessings of Western civilization upon the dark continent, and requiring only obedience in return. They are here to save the world, says Magoey, of philanthrocapitalists, as long as the world yields to their interests. Thanks to their powerful collaboration, pharma would emerge as perhaps Africa's cruelest and most deadly colonial overlord. HIV provided Gates and Dr. Fauci a beachhead in Africa, for their new brand of medical colonialism, and a vehicle for the partners to build and maintain a powerful global network that came to include heads of state, health ministers, international health regulators, the WHO, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, and key leaders from the financial industry and the military officials who served as command center of the burgeoning biosecurity apparatus. Their foot soldiers were the army of frontline virologists, vaccinologists, clinicians, and hospital administrators who relied on their largesse and acted as the community based ideological commissars of this crusade. Philanthrocapitalism's Global Imperium In August 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt forced Winston Churchill to sign the Atlantic Charter as a condition for U.S. support of the Allied effort in World War II. The Charter, a heartening emblem of American idealism, required the European Allies to relinquish their colonies following the war. For two centuries, unimpeded access to the colonized world's rich national resources Had been the principal source of European wealth. The Atlantic Charter and nationalist liberation movements in the 1950s and 60s dismantled the traditional colonial model in Africa. The continent, however, quickly reopened to soft colonization by multinational corporations and their state sponsors. During the Cold War, the U.S. military and intelligence agencies largely replaced Europe's colonial armies in those regions, supporting virtually any tin horn dictator who proved his anti-communist bona fides by rolling out red carpets for U.S. multinationals. When the Berlin Wall fell, the United States already had 655 military bases, now 800, across the developing world, and U.S. companies had blank checks in host nations to extract agricultural, mineral, petroleum, and lumber resources and large markets for finished goods, including, notably, pharmaceuticals. After the Soviet bugaboo collapsed, Islamic terrorism and biosecurity supplanted communism as the rationale for a continued U.S. military and corporate presence all over the developing world. Pharma's acquisitive longing for Africa's natural resources and its teeming and compliant populations with their elevated disease burdens helped drive the rise of biosecurity as the spear tip of corporate imperialism. Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci offered biosecurity as the underlying rationale for their medical neocolonialism project. Paraphrasing the military's Cold War dogma, Gates and Dr. Fauci warned that if we didn't stop the germs in Africa, we'd end up fighting them in New York and Los Angeles. They echoed also the hackneyed crusaders' narrative that they were rescuing the continent from famine, pestilence, and ignorance with superior know-how and breakthrough technologies. The combined Gates-Fauci power to rain foreign aid dollars on capital-starved African governments made them modern imperial viceroys on the continent. WHO became their colonial vassal, legitimizing and facilitating their campaigns to open African markets for drug makers to dump unwanted products and to experiment with promising new cures. AIDS Vaccines in Africa In January 2003, as Gates and Dr. Fauci opened dozens of clinical trials for experimental AIDS vaccines across Africa, Dr. Fauci's perennial hagiographer Michael Spector, writing in The New Yorker, raised trenchant questions about the ethical problems associated with long-term vaccine trials in the developing world, funded by Western donors and designed largely by Western scientists. Specter asks, Has the race to save Africa from AIDS put Western science at odds with Western ethics? The article quotes African leaders asking why their continent needed to shoulder the burden of testing expensive vaccines and medicines that, if successful, would be primarily used in Western countries. They complained about pharmaceutical companies automatically lowering safety standards for clinical trials when they stepped onto the African continent. Why us, a prominent African journalist asked Spectre. It seems it's always us. For how many years does Uganda have to be the test case? I am very worried about these trials, said Peter Lurie, the deputy director of Public Citizens Health Research Group, Lurie and his colleague, Sidney Wolfe, complained to Specter about the cavalier attitude of American researchers toward third-world subjects. Instead of seeing themselves as activists for better care in Africa, scientists will use the poor quality of care to justify what they want to do anyway, Lurie said. But you are not permitted simply to use subjects in order to collect data because it is useful to you. That is exploitation and abuse. That is what Tuskegee was. Lurie was referring to CDC's notorious decision to leave hundreds of black Alabama sharecroppers with untreated syphilis for 40 years beginning in 1932 in order to document the course of the disease. I am proud that my uncle, Senator Edward Kennedy, played a key role in exposing and ending the experiment in 1973. Lurie added, "'If we aren't careful,' we could be in for the greatest injustice in the history of medicine. Later that year, Dr. Fauci's agency announced that NIAID's most recent AIDS vaccine experiment had failed. Please don't say that I am pessimistic because I am not, Anthony Fauci said in 2003, obliquely conceding that HIV and AIDS were not behaving the way his hypotheses predicted. The best ways to vaccinate don't work with HIV. We need to come up with something new. Gates seemed to think that floods of new money could teach the virus to behave. In July 2006, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced 16 grants totaling $287 million to create an international network of collaborative research consortia focused on accelerating the pace of HIV vaccine development by funding more than 165 PIs to conduct vaccine trials in 19 countries. Two years later, on July 18, 2008, Dr. Fauci announced the cancellation of the largest human trial to date. It was NIAID's most promising HIV vaccine by far. Dr. Fauci contributed million of taxpayer money to develop the Merck jab, and NIAID had already begun enrolling 8,500 U.S. volunteers. It would be the first trial of an HIV jab on U.S. citizens. Dr. Fauci said he intended the new trial to determine whether the vaccine could significantly lower the amount of HIV in the blood of those who become infected. Of course, Merck and NIAID had already by then tested the vaccine on 3,000 participants in nine African countries. The latest data were showing that the trial had not gone well. The Times reported coyly that the PAVE trial had been postponed after a test of the Merck vaccine failed in its two main objectives—to prevent infection and to lower the amount of HIV in the blood among those who became infected. Buried near the end of the New York Times article were some key facts. It turned out that the vaccine was not only ineffective, but researchers reported alarming safety signals that caused a safety monitoring committee to halt the study. Furthermore, instead of preventing infection, The Merck NIAID researchers reported data suggesting the vaccine actually raised the risk of contracting HIV. Dr. Fauci said he reached his decision to abort the coming trial after meeting with scientists trying to understand why the Merck vaccine malfunctioned. Dr. Fauci's colleagues could offer no explanation for the vaccine's failure. Lawrence K. Altman of The New York Times reported that Dr. Fauci admitted that after a decade of effort, scientists realized that they did not know enough about how HIV vaccines and the immune system interact. Dr. Fauci told The Times that it was becoming clearer that more fundamental research and animal testing would be needed before an HIV vaccine was ever marketed. These were stunning admissions which seemed to validate the critiques by Duesberg and others who predicted the inevitable failure of a vaccine based on the defective HIV-AIDS hypothesis. Dr. Fauci said he had concluded that scientists must go a step at a time because they did not yet know fundamental facts like which immune reactions are the most important in preventing the infection. Cornell University scientist Kendall A. Smith made an even broader confession of error. We really have not understood what actually constitutes a successful vaccine, despite the more than two centuries that have elapsed since Sir Edward Jenner described the first effective vaccine for smallpox virus in 1798. Consequently, all of the vaccines currently in use were developed empirically and only within the past 50 years, without a comprehensive understanding as to how the immune system functions. If Fauci's HIV-AIDS hypotheses were true, they should have been able to develop a vaccine, observes Dr. David Rasnick, a Ph.D. biochemist who has worked for 30 years in the pharmaceutical biotech field. Fauci's fundamental conundrum is that he has told everybody to diagnose AIDS based on the presence of HIV antibodies. With every other disease, the presence of antibodies is the signal that the patient has vanquished the disease. With AIDS, Fauci and Gallo, and now Gates, claim it's a sign you're about to die. Think about it. If the objective of an AIDS vaccine is to stimulate antibody production, then success would mean that every vaccinated person would also have an AIDS diagnosis. I mean, this is fodder for a comedy bit. It's like someone gave the Three Stooges an annual billion-dollar budget. On October 8, 2015, Gallows Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine announced the launch of its Phase I human trials of Gallo's latest HIV vaccine candidate. A consortium led by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave $23.4 million to Gallo's research on this vaccine. Other money came from Redfield's pals and the U.S. military HIV research program. Gallo launched his clinical trial in collaboration with Profectus Biosciences, a biotech firm that he recently spun off from IHV to allow him to monetize the research he conducted with tax-deductible funding from Gates and taxpayer dollars from NIH and the military. Gallo had already been testing his new HIV vaccines on animals, and the results in monkeys are interesting, but they're not perfect. Undeterred by the vaccine's disappointing performance in macaques, Gallo was champing at the bit to test his concoction on some higher primates. If we keep just using monkeys, we're never going anywhere. We need for humans to respond. In May 2020, I asked Gallo what had ever happened to this experimental vaccine. Gallo claimed, in what I suspected to be an evasive non-answer, that he was still, after six years, testing it, For an immune response. By 2015, the BMGF was spending about $400 million a year on AIDS drug research. Gallo told me that his is only one of over 100 groups Gates has funded to find the elusive vaccine. Gates admitted publicly to Agence France Presse that the quest for an AIDS vaccine has taken longer than expected with many disappointments along the way. Despite Gates and Fauci's impressive string of failures, Gates remained bullish. A vaccine, that's a big area of funding for our foundation. But even in the best case, that's five years away, and perhaps as long as ten, he jauntily predicted, during a question-and-answer session with young people. Probably the top priority is a vaccine. If we had a vaccine that can protect people, we can stop the epidemic. On February 3, 2020, Julie Steenhuysen of Reuters reported that NIAID had suddenly halted its clinical trial of its most promising HIV vaccine to date. NIAID was in the middle of Phase three trials on more than 5,000 South Africans when they realized that once again, the vaccine was raising the risk of AIDS and in vaccinated individuals. Dr. Fauci issued another of his cheerful prognostications. Research continues on other approaches to a safe and effective HIV vaccine, which I still believe can be achieved. Since 1984, undeterred by 37 years of broken promises, failed clinical trials, billions of squandered dollars, an uncounted human carnage. Dr. Fauci and his old crony Bob Gallo continue to ride the AIDS vaccine gravy train. Neither man has advanced the search for a cure, but both have built impressive institutions. Existential questions about their scientific validity still bedeviled the two intertwined disciplines of virology and vaccinology, for which those institutions form key nerve centers. Dr. Fauci's battle against AIDS is a religious crusade rooted in faith and appeals to authority rather than empiricism or rigorous scientific proof. Following the path of earlier colonial interventions in Africa, Dr. Fauci's evangelical campaign to impose the orthodoxies of germ warfare on Africans is an exercise in raw power, domination, and the ruthless extraction of profit. Virology, a New Janissary Corps As with the Sultans, Khans, Tsars, Monarchs, and Emperors of yore, Dr. Fauci's power derives from his capacity to fund, arm, pay, maintain, and effectively deploy a large and sprawling standing army. NIH alone controls an annual $42 billion budget mainly distributed in over 50,000 grants supporting over 300,000 positions globally in medical research. The thousands of doctors, hospital administrators, health officials, and research virologists whose positions, careers, and salaries depend on AIDS dollars flowing from Dr. Fauci, Mr. Gates, And the Welcome Trust, Great Britain's version of the Gates Foundation, are the officers and soldiers in a mercenary army that functions to defend all vaccines and Dr. Fauci's HIV AIDS doxologies. The entire field of virology is Dr. Fauci's Janissary Corps, the elite warriors that he can rapidly muster to each new battlefield to achieve new conquests and ruthlessly suppress rebellion, dissent, and resistance. In 2020, many of the Gates-Fauci HIV vaccine trials in Africa suddenly became COVID-19 vaccine trials, as the unprecedented tsunami of new COVID-19 plunder began flowing through Dr. Fauci to the same disciplined legions of the virology caste. At the outset of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci tapped his trusty procurator, Dr. Larry Corey, to launch the COVID 19 Prevention Network with the purpose of redeploying Dr. Fauci's most reliable and trusted PIs on a blitzkrieg campaign to win lightning vaccine approvals for his preferred jabs. Fauci accomplished this daunting mission by transforming his existing HIV trials practically overnight into phase three COVID 19 vaccine trials. Without breaking stride, his PI army pivoted to march in lockstep into the new viral skirmish. Their exquisitely disciplined ranks also supplied the independent experts who populated the FDA and CDC committees that approved those shoddily tested COVID pokes, the doctors and medical ethicists who appeared on TV to run interference for every government-mandated COVID-19 countermeasure. Masks, lockdowns, social distancing, and vaccination, including justifying the jab for children and pregnant women. In any rational universe, giving these untested low-efficacy shots to children and pregnant women would constitute both medical malpractice and child abuse, given the low risk for COVID and higher risk from the vaccine among these cohorts. They penned editorials in the newspapers and articles in the scientific journals validating official orthodoxies and uniformly dismissing dissenters as screwballs, flakes, quacks, and conspiracy theorists. From their ranks, Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates tapped the charlatans and biostitutes who conducted the fraudulent studies that torpedoed hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and won approval for their pet blockbuster drug remdesivir. When revelations that the COVID-19 virus was likely the product of genetic engineering threatened to discredit his empire, Tony Fauci dispatched the hand-picked elite of virology's officer corps to draft and sign the consequential editorials published in Nature and The Lancet in February and March of 2020, assuring the world that the lab leak hypothesis was a crackpot conspiracy. The monolithic discipline of the virology caste and its capacity to rigorously enforce its omerta effectively silenced debate on COVID-19's origins for a year. The saga of Fauci virologist Christian Anderson, a PI who built his career on serial NIAID grants, offers a stark example of Fauci's system of payoffs. Anderson was the first grantee to alert Tony Fauci in a 10.32 p.m. email on January 31, 2020, to the strong evidence that COVID-19 was lab-generated and that the experiment that created it may bear NIAID's fingerprints. After midnight, Dr. Fauci warned his chief aide to keep his phone on and stand ready for some important work. To arrange a of emergency meeting to discuss damage control with 11 of the world's top virologists, including Anderson and five key researchers from the Wellcome Trust. Dr. Fauci was the only U.S. government official on this phone call. Four days later, Anderson, who less than a 100 hours earlier was convinced the virus did not come from nature, submitted a letter secretly edited by Fauci, signed by five prominent virologists, all NIAID and Wellcome Trust PIs, ridiculing the suggestion that the circulating coronavirus could possibly have been lab-generated. One month later, Dr. Fauci, without disclosing his secretive involvement, cited that very letter at a White House press conference as proof that COVID-19 was naturally evolved. In the months that followed, Anderson's employer, Scripps Research Institute, received an array of substantial grants from NIAID, totaling $78 million for the calendar year. The NIAID, by the end of 2020, had granted the employers of four of the five signatories on the paper a total of nearly $155 million. That's how the game gets played. Dr. Fauci's disciples and soldiers understand that, as long as they support Dr. Fauci, they will continue to benefit from the endless stream of public health booty he controls, their spoils from the war on germs and on skeptics. HIV Vaccines, A New Lease on Life In March 2020, Bill Gates stepped down from his position on the board of directors at Microsoft, explaining that he was now spending the predominant amount of his time on the pandemic. Gates celebrated his Microsoft retirement by directing a river of money to build six manufacturing plants for different COVID vaccines and funding vaccine trials by companies like Inovio Pharmaceuticals, AstraZeneca, and Moderna Inc., all front runners in the race to develop a COVID-19 jab. The Gates Foundation also invested $480 million in a wide range of vaccine candidates and platform technologies through the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, CEPI, which Gates founded with Wellcome Trust Director Jeremy Farrar. Tony Fauci, meanwhile, took over managing the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The two men played tag team on the evening news and Sunday talk shows to promote remdesivir and to let their obsequious hosts and the American people know that the only way to end the global hostage crisis was compliance by 7 billion people with their new vaccines. No one ever questioned Gates's mantric pronouncement which he repeated like a Gregorian chant. Realistically, if we're going to return to normal, we need to develop a safe, effective vaccine. We need to make billions of doses. We need to get them out to every part of the world, and we need all of this to happen as quickly as possible. He reiterated versions of this message ad nauseum, as he did again on CNN on March 22, 2020. Things won't be back to truly normal until we have a vaccine that we've gotten out to basically the entire world. Back to HIV But despite all the excitement about COVID, neither of these partners forgot their first love, AIDS. On February 9th, 2021, with his Operation Warp Speed Vaccine rollout approaching the finish line, Dr. Tony Fauci took a well-earned breather to make an exciting announcement. He told his giddy media acolytes that NIH had just committed to a $200 million joint initiative with the Gates Foundation to fund the next generation of AIDS vaccines using NIAID's new mRNA technology. This collaboration is an ambitious step forward harnessing the most cutting-edge scientific tools and NIH's sizable global HIV research infrastructure to one day deliver a cure and end the global HIV pandemic. Ignoring 40 years of abysmal failure, NIH Director Francis S. Collins, MD, PhD, who plays Robin to Dr. Fauci's Batman, added, We aim to go big or go home. That thrilling announcement occurred almost exactly 40 years after the first report of AIDS. After four decades of cataclysmic outcomes, billions of squandered dollars, untold lives lost, and failed promises, the press corps gave this most recent production the same rapt and credulous applause with which they greeted Teflon Tony's hundred other indistinguishable pronouncements over four decades. He is the P.T. Barnum of public health, Marvel's journalist Celia Farber. He cracks his whip and says abracadabra, and they all forget that they've seen the same trick so many times. It's really quite astonishing. By then, the Fauci-Gates arsenal of COVID pokes were topping the all-time charts for medical money-making by their pharma partners with Pfizer alone Projecting $96 billion in COVID vaccine sales. Moderna followed up Dr. Fauci's appearance with a press release announcing new mRNA vaccines for Zika, Ebola, flu, cancer, and HIV. On July 25, 2021, Dr. Fauci expanded on this exciting communique by announcing a new multi billion dollar government initiative to use taxpayer money and NIAID-patented mRNA technology to prepare distinct new vaccines for 20 families of viruses that might spark future pandemics. Dr. Fauci disclosed that he was already in discussions with the Biden White House about his electrifying proposal, which he said will cost a few billion dollars on top of NIAID's existing $6 billion budget. He said he planned to launch the project in 2022. Dr. Collins said he found Dr. Fauci's proposal compelling, scolding that as we begin to contemplate a successful end to the COVID-19 pandemic, we must not slip back into complacency. On September 2, 2021, Joe Biden came through for Dr. Fauci again, announcing a $65 billion pandemic response effort. Dr. Fauci will be its point man. Biden's announcement eclipsed some sad news. On August 31, 2021, Dr. Fauci acknowledged their premature termination of yet another of his African HIV vaccine experiments. A large trial on 2,600 African girls of a Johnson & Johnson HIV jab funded jointly by NIAID and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, had failed to demonstrate a beneficial effect. The Heartbreaking Legacy of Medical Colonialism Rudyard Kipling originally coined the term White Man's Burden in his 1897 poem exhorting the moral imperative of the United States and England to impose Western civilizations and Christianity on tribal peoples for their own good. Every student of African history is familiar with the recurring theme of well-intentioned white men visiting calamity on Africans. My interest in Africa began as a child. I have traveled the continent for six decades and met some of its most visionary leaders, including Tom Mboya, Jomo Kenyatta. Julius Nyerere and Nelson Mandela, these anti-colonial leaders understood that poverty is a complex conspiracy of social, historical, political, institutional, and technical maladies. It is most often best addressed through small-scale, locally tailored trial and error experimentation. The optimal solutions are invariably homegrown, with regular local input, disciplined self-assessment accountability, frequent course corrections, and lots of humility by administrators, officials, and above all, foreigners. Gates's HIV vaccine and antiviral program is due to its continent-wide scale, arguably the worst in a long parade of paternalistic Western schemes by imperialists, avaricious adventurers, scammers, schemers, charlatans, double-dealing rogues, and well-meaning dolts who regularly pledge to end African suffering. Instead of approaching Africa with humility, curiosity, open ears, and a willingness to support local initiatives, Gates leads with the same Weisenheimer arrogance that Judge Penfield Jackson pegged as Gates's defining character trait in his 1998 ruling. At best, Gates and Dr. Fauci are just the latest in a long line of crusaders, con artists, and conquistadors who periodically appear on the continent, armed with the conviction that they know what's best for Africans. Too often these are self-serving, one-size-fits-all vanity projects that in the end only compound calamity and magnify suffering. At worst, in the words of Lofredo and Greenstein, Gates and his foundation function as a Trojan horse for Western corporations, which of course have no goal greater than an increased bottom line. The foundation appears to see the global South as both a dumping ground for drugs deemed too unsafe for the developed world and a testing ground for drugs not yet determined to be safe enough for the developed world. Magical Vaccines are Gates's preeminent cookie-cutter solution for the ills of poverty, famine, drought, and disease. The absurdity of expensive shots as a remedy for indigence, a salve for malnutrition, or the dearth of potable water is obvious when one considers that three billion people live on less than two dollars per day. Eight hundred and forty million people don't have enough to eat, one billion lack clean water or access to sanitation. One billion are illiterate. About a quarter of children in poor countries do not finish primary school. Poverty is a target-rich environment, but the data suggests that Gates's vaccines miss the target altogether. Sociologist Lindsay Magoe quotes a young health researcher based at the University of Cape Coast on western Ghana. From my point of view, it's more like the Gates Foundation are selling technology than solving problems. Most of their calls have to do with developing some new technology or vaccines. How Gates Controls the WHO Worst, Gates has used his money strategically to infect the international aid agencies. With his distorted self serving priorities. The United States historically has been the largest direct donor to WHO with a contribution of $604.2 million in 2018 through 2019, the last years for which numbers are available. That year, BMGF gave $431.3 million and Gavi gave. million. Plus, Gates also routes funding to WHO through SAGE and UNICEF and Rotary International, bringing his cumulative total contributions to over $1 billion, making Gates the unofficial top sponsor of the WHO, even before the Trump administration's 2020 move to cut all his support to the organization. Those $1 billion tax-deductible donations give Gates leverage and control over WHO's $5.6 billion budget and over international health policy, which he largely directs to serve the profit interest of his pharma partners. Pharmaceutical companies cement WHO's institutional bias toward vaccines with approximately $70 million of their own direct contributions. Our priorities are your priorities, Gates declared in 2011. In 2012, WHO's then Director General Margaret Chan complained that because the WHO's budget is highly earmarked, it is driven by what she calls donor interests. According to Magoey, according to its charter, the WHO is meant to be accountable to member governments. The Gates Foundation, on the other hand, is accountable to no one other than its three trustees, Bill, Melinda, and Berkshire Hathaway CEO Warren Buffett. Many civil society organizations fear the WHO's independence is compromised when a significant portion of its budget comes from a private philanthropic organization with the power to stipulate exactly where and how the UN institution spends its money. McGoughy observes that virtually every significant decision at WHO is first vetted by the Gates Foundation. As the UK-based NGO Global Justice Now told Zone, the Foundation's influence is so pervasive that many actors in international development which would otherwise critique the policy and practice of the Foundation are unable to speak out independently as a result of its funding and patronage. See also The Perils of Philanthrocapitalism, Eric Franklin Amarante, Maryland Law Review, 2018. Gates's vaccine obsession has diverted WHO's giving away from poverty alleviation, nutrition, and clean water to make vaccine uptake its preeminent public health metric. And Gates is not afraid to throw his weight around. In 2011, Gates spoke at the WHO, ordering that all 193 member states, you must make vaccines a central focus of your health systems. The following year, the World Health Assembly, which sets the WHO agenda, adopted a global vaccine plan that the Gates Foundation co-authored. Over half of WHO's total budget now goes to vaccines. That narrow focus on inoculations is deepening Africa's health crisis, according to global health experts and African officials. Their control of several billion dollars in annual inputs gives Gates and Fauci effective control over not only WHO, but also the retinue of authoritative quasi-governmental agencies that Gates, often with Fauci's assistance and support, created and or funded including CEPI, Gavi, PATH, Unitaid, UNICEF, SAGE, the Global Development Program, the Global Fund, the Brighton Collaboration, and governmental health ministries in dozens of African nations that are largely dependent on the WHO and other global health partnerships. A 2017 analysis of the 23 global health partnerships revealed that seven were entirely dependent on Gates' funding, and another nine listed the foundation as its top donor. The Gates Foundation also controls the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts, SAGE, the principal advisory group to the WHO for vaccines. During a recent meeting, half of SAGE's governing board of 15 people listed conflicts of interest with the Gates Foundation. The most powerful of these groups is Gavi, the second-largest non-state funder of the WHO. Gates created Gavi as a public-private partnership that facilitates bulk sales of vaccines from his pharma partners to poor countries. Gavi is the template for Gates' impressive capacity to use his celebrity, credibility, and wealth to mesmerize key public officials and heads of state, into giving Gates control over their foreign aid spending. Gates launched Gavi in 1999 with a $750 million donation. The BMGF occupies a permanent seat on the Gavi board. Other organizations that Gates controls or can rely upon, WHO, UNICEF, the World Bank, and the pharmaceutical industry occupy additional seats giving Gates dictatorial authority over Gavi's decision-making. The BMGF has donated a total of $4.1 billion to Gavi to date. But Gates has used that relatively trivial contribution, and his personal charm, I suppose, to attract over $16 billion from government and private donors, including $1.16 billion annually from the U.S. government, five times the amount that Gates donates to the WHO. When President Trump withdrew the United States from WHO in 2020, he continued the U.S. contribution of $1.16 billion to Gavi. The cumulative effect, therefore, of the withdrawal was to increase Gates's power over WHO and over global health policy. A recent assessment of Gavi by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offers potent testimony of Gates's capacity to inspire the sort of obsequious adulation that has prompted Western leaders to hand over foreign policy and vast hordes of taxpayer dollars to Gates's discretion. In August 2021, Johnson declared that Gavi was the new NATO. Switzerland, which hosts Gavi's global headquarters in Geneva, has granted Gates's group full diplomatic immunity a privilege Switzerland denies to many nations and their diplomats. Additionally, the sheer magnitude of his foundation's financial contributions has made Bill Gates an unofficial, albeit unelected, leader of the WHO. By 2017, Gates's power was so complete that he handpicked his deputy, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, as the WHO's new Director General Despite complaints that Tedros would be the first director general to the WHO without a medical degree, and despite Tedros's dubious background, critics credibly charged Tedros with running a terror group associated with extreme human rights violations, including genocidal policies against a rival tribal group in Ethiopia. As Ethiopia's foreign minister, Tedros aggressively suppressed freedom of speech including arresting and jailing journalists who criticized his party's policies. Tedros's key qualification for the WHO gig was his loyalty to Gates. Tedros previously served on the boards of two organizations that Gates founded, funded, and controls, Gavi and the Global Fund, where Tedros was Gates' trusted chair of the board. GAVI is the most tangible outcome of the partnership Gates sealed with Fauci in early 2000. Under the terms of the partnership, Dr. Fauci greenhouses a pipeline of new vaccines in NIAID labs and farms them out for cultivation in clinical trials by his university PIs and the pharmaceutical multinationals in which Gates holds high investment stakes. Gates then builds out supply chains and creates innovative financial devices for guaranteeing those companies' markets in third-world countries. A key feature of this scheme is Gates's capacity, through WHO, to pressure developing countries to expedite and purchase the vaccine, and to use Gavi as a bank through which wealthy countries co-sign the debt. Western nations once funneled their foreign aid through traditional NGOs for food and economic development. Gates has captured those deal flows for Gavi and his pharma partners by pressuring Western countries to fork over their foreign aid to Gavi. Gates thereby hijacks the foreign assistance monies from wealthy governments, diverting it to drug makers. In May 2012, Following two meetings with Gavi CEO Dr. Seth Berkley, Fauci candidly described the close relationship between Gavi and NIH. We, NIH, work on the upstream component of the fundamental research development. Gavi develops a vaccine and gets it into the arms of people who need them. Dr. Fauci explained that while NIH is way up in the upstream and Gavi is way down in the downstream, there is no daylight between Gates's organization and his agency. There are areas of synergy and outright collaboration between us in setting the standard of what is needed and what kinds of research questions are important to answer. We don't want to be putting resources particularly in the developing world if the research isn't going to be implemented, particularly with cold-chain concerns. Gavi is much more of a visible coordinated force now, with a lot of resources working in many, many countries. In contrast to some of the less reliable African governments, it's an organization you can deal directly with. Western nations originally conceived the World Health Organization and the United Nations to embody liberal ideologies implemented via a democratic structure of one nation. One vote, India's leading human rights activist, Dr. Vandana Shiva, told me. Gates has single handedly destroyed all that. He has hijacked the WHO and transformed it into an instrument of personal power that he wields for the cynical purpose of increasing pharmaceutical profits. He has single handedly destroyed the infrastructure of public health globally. He has privatized our health systems and our food systems to serve his own purposes. As Jeremy Lefrido and Michelle Greenstein concede in their July 2020 article, the Gates Foundation has already effectively privatized the international body charged with creating health policy, transforming it into a vehicle for corporate dominance. It has facilitated the dumping of toxic products onto the people of the global South, and even used the world's poor as guinea pigs for drug experiments. The Gates Foundation's influence over public health policy is practically contingent on ensuring that safety regulations and other government functions are weak enough to be circumvented. It therefore operates against the independence of nation-states and as a vehicle for Western capital. The Sanctity of Patents a singular feature of Gates's vaccine caper, largely unnoticed until recently by the global press, is his ironclad commitment to protect pharma's intellectual property rights. Asked in a Sky News interview if sharing intellectual property and the recipe for vaccines would be helpful, Gates replied bluntly, no. There's all sorts of issues around intellectual property having to do with medicines but not in terms of how quickly we've been able to ramp up the volume here. I do a regular phone call with the pharmaceutical CEOs to make sure that work is going at full speed. In April 2021, his unyielding allegiance to patent rights and corporate profits finally caused cracks to appear in the monolithic support for Gates among mainstream media and the public health establishment. That month, the New Republic writer Alexander Zaitchik published a lengthy article, Vaccine Monster, describing how Bill Gates had aggressively impeded global access to COVID vaccines by the world's poorest people in order to safeguard the profitable patent privileges of his pharmaceutical partners. By March 2020, Indian and African nations anticipating severe vaccine shortages of COVID inoculations for their populations were clamoring for a waiver of patent rights that would allow local manufacturers to rapidly supply hundreds of millions of generic vaccines at prices that would provide access to the poor. Western nations joined the hullabaloo in the cause of patent exemptions, recognizing that government innovation— Vast flows of taxpayer subsidies, regulatory waivers, liability exemptions, coercive mandates, and licensing monopolies had given birth to the COVID vaccines, with drug companies themselves playing relatively minor roles. By August 2020, a global movement to waive patents for COVID-19 vaccines had gathered the momentum of a runaway locomotive. Proponents included much of the global research community, major NGOs with long experience in medicines development and access, and dozens of current and former world leaders and public health experts. In a May 2020 open letter, more than 140 political and civil society leaders called upon governments and companies to begin pooling their intellectual property. Now is not the time to leave this massive and moral task to market forces, they wrote. In early March 2021, the world's leading public health authorities launched a voluntary intellectual property pool inside the WHO to ensure that COVID-19 drugs and vaccines would be universally and cheaply available. The WHO COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, or CTAP. In May 2021, President Biden threw his weight behind the movement, calling for a temporary suspension of patent protections for COVID-19 vaccines to ensure coverage among poorer nations. We believe that intellectual property rights constitute a very substantial barrier to ensure equitable access, he said. We believe that if we could have a limited, targeted waiver— To ensure that we can ramp up production in various parts of the world, we would go a long way to ensure that we address not only the prevention, but also the treatment of COVID 19. Biden's equity initiative forced Gates into the open. Gates's entire philanthropic capitalism business model rests on the sanctity of knowledge monopolies. And so, with the whole world watching, Gates revealed that patent integrity. The source of vaccine profits to his pharma partners is the sine qua non of Gates's global health initiatives. When push turns to shove, patent protection eclipses his professed concerns for public health. His ironclad control of WHO made Gates's opposition to CTAP dispositive. The runaway train hit a granite mountain. Any pretense that democracy or equity should determine global health policy collapsed before the raw power and influence of Bill Gates. According to the New Republic, advocates for pooling and open science, who seemed ascendant and even unstoppable that winter, confronted the possibility that they'd been outmatched and outmaneuvered by the most powerful man in global public health. Gates derailed the CTAP pool, replacing it with his own WHO program, the COVID-19 Act Accelerator, which consecrated industry patent rights and relegated developing world vaccination programs to the charitable impulses of pharmaceutical companies and Western donor nations fighting for their own share of the vaccines. As the predictable result of Gates's intervention, Around 130 of the poorest of the world's 190 nations, 2.5 billion people, have had zero access to vaccines as of February 2021. As Zeitchik pointed out, the supply crisis was easily foreseeable. Not only were the obstacles posed by intellectual property easily predictable a year ago, there was no lack of people making noise about the urgency of avoiding them. Gates had once again used his international reputation and money authority to shield corporate greed with a halo effect. International health officials warned, for example, that despite all government expressions of concern about Africa, less than 2% of all doses administered globally have been in Africa. Just 1.5% of the continent's population are fully vaccinated. Paradoxically. These nations happen to have lower COVID mortalities by orders of magnitude. There has never been a point at which the Gates Foundation, before the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, and now at the worst moment of the pandemic, is willing to surrender and look at IP as something that has to be managed differently to ensure that we're doing as much as possible, said Rohit Malpani, board member of the global health agency UNITAID. Gates opposed waiving some provisions of the World Trade Organization's Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS. A waiver would allow member nations to stop enforcing a set of COVID-19-related patents for the duration of the pandemic. Bill Gates asked everyone to block the TRIPS waiver and trust a handful of companies hoarding IP and know-how, said James Love, director at knowledge ecology international gates's commitment to patent rights is existential and unyielding gates has ruthlessly defended intellectual property monopolies since his early battles with open source hobbyists in microsoft's natal days gates built both his fortune and his charitable model of philanthrocapitalism on the sanctity of intellectual property protections in software food and drugs. Gates made his bones with his big pharma partners by triumphing over Nelson Mandela in hand-to-hand combat during the grim African AIDS crisis of the 1990s. South Africa was ground zero in the global AIDS epidemic, with HIV infection rates affecting one in every five adults. Mandela had made himself the paladin in a third world crusade to allow generic drug makers to give the global poor access to expensive AIDS drugs. Mandela's reputation as a kind of saint stymied the pharmaceutical companies reluctant to defend a venal business model that by their own estimation was a death sentence for 29 million African children and adults. Cloaking himself in the moral authority as the world's largest charitable benefactor, Gates stepped forward as the industry champion, expounding the cause of intellectual property and knowledge monopolies over public health. That ghillie suit of selfless altruism successfully confused the press and public, especially the liberal establishment, about Gates's solipsistic motives for over two decades. In December 1997, Mandela's administration pushed through a law allowing the health officials to import, produce, or purchase generic AIDS drugs that were out of reach for most Africans. Pharma was happy to test AIDS drugs on Africans, but had priced the final product far out of their reach. Glaxo, for example, was still selling annual dosages of AZT for $10,000, Gates declared war on Mandela and his generic drug crusade by supporting a suit by 39 pharma multinationals who sued South Africa to prevent poorer nations from accessing generic AIDS drugs for their people. Once again, Gates put the halo on greed. The New Republic chronicled the fight. In Geneva, the lawsuit was reflected in a battle at the WHO which was divided along a north-south fault line. On one side, the home countries of the western drug companies. On the other, a coalition of most from the global south, and dozens of leading public health groups, including Médecins Sans Frontières and Oxfam, joined the battle on behalf of Mandela. In the end, Gates and Pharma won the legal case, and Gates helped push through enduring bulletproof protection for pharmaceutical patents by his implacable support of the trade-related aspects of intellectual property, TRIPS, an international agreement that outlawed the use of unsanctioned generics to combat AIDS and other diseases. Today, leading public health officials agree that the primary drivers of the current artificial shortage of COVID-19 vaccines is Gates' defense of intellectual property rights to protect the profiteering by his pharma partners. Zaitchik recounts how battle-scarred public health veterans saw clearly for the first time how Gates' addiction to proprietary science and market monopolies easily overrode his professed concern about the impacts of the pandemic and poor nations and the structural inequality in access to medicines. COVID-19 reveals the deep structural inequality in access to medicines globally. And a root cause is IP that sustains and dominates industry's interests at the cost of lives. Zaychik offers a devastating indictment of Gates. Gates is certain he knows better, but his failure to anticipate a crisis of supply and his refusal to engage those who predicted it have complicated the carefully maintained image of an all-knowing, saintly, mega-philanthropist Kovacs presents a high-stakes demonstration of Gates' deepest ideological commitments, not just to intellectual property rights, but also to the conflation of these rights with an imaginary free market in pharmaceuticals, an industry dominated by companies whose power derives from politically constructed and politically imposed monopolies. After describing how Gates pushed back ruthlessly defending the status quo, and running effective interference for those profiting by the billions from their control of COVID-19 vaccines, Zeitschik offers a glimmer of hope for humanity's most downtrodden third fighting for their lives against this vaccine monster. There are signs of overdue scrutiny of Gates's role in public health and lifelong commitment to exclusive intellectual property rights. Blacks to the front of the line. At the February 2021 press conference, Francis Collins said that NIH's new generation of HIV vaccines will specifically target Africans and African Americans to make sure everybody, everywhere, has the opportunity to be cured, not just those in high-income countries. Such sympathies were a consistent preoccupation along the Gates-NIH nexus. Melinda Gates lamented on CNN April 10, 2020, that she was kept up at night, worrying about vulnerable populations in Africa. In June 2020, she told Time magazine that in the United States, Black people should get the COVID-19 vaccine first. The idea that Blacks should be first in line for the vaccine, and official anxieties that many Blacks would resist this privilege, were persistent themes and pronouncements by the leading health agencies during the pandemic. As we shall see in Chapter 12, Gates, Fauci, and the intelligence agency and pharmaceutical company partners repeatedly war-gamed strategies for overcoming anticipated Black resistance in many of the dozen pandemic simulations leading up to COVID-19. Once the pandemic was underway, HHS recruited Black preachers, HBCU college deans, civil rights leaders, And sports figures like Hank Aaron to soften jab hesitancy in the black community. They staged press conferences and highly publicized celebrity vaccination confabs and extravagantly financed government advertising campaigns targeting blacks in both the United States and Africa. In December 2020, Dr. Fauci scolded resistance in the black community, saying, The time is now to put skepticism aside. Without citing any studies demonstrating the vaccine was safe, he said that the first thing that you might want to say to my African brothers and sisters is that the vaccine you're going to be taking was developed by an African-American woman, and that's just a fact. When Cicely Tyson, Marvin Hagler, and rapper Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX, all died soon after taking COVID vaccines, The medical community and CDC rushed in to assure the African-American community that the deaths were not vaccine-related. Social media and mainstream outlets censored or removed stories that suggested a vaccine association. Gates-funded fact-checker organizations debunked any link. The desperation to discredit such talk inspired many respectable media outfits to simply lie when home-run King Hank Aaron, whom I knew, died 17 days after receiving a vaccine at a staged press conference at Atlanta's Morehouse College. I wrote that his death was among a wave of deaths in older people following vaccination. I never said the vaccine caused Aaron's death. The New York Times, CNN, ABC, NBC, Inside Edition and a hundred news organizations across the globe rushed to castigate me and rebuff my article as vaccine misinformation, assuring the public that the Fulton County coroner had declared Aaron's death unrelated to the vaccine. When I called the Fulton County coroner, the office informed me that they had never seen Hank Aaron's body and that Aaron's family had buried him without autopsy. After I published this embarrassing fact, not a single news organization posted a retraction. Federal law requires that every injury or death following vaccination during clinical trials or by logical extension with emergency use products must be attributed to the vaccine unless proven otherwise. Nevertheless, as of August 2021, the CDC officially took the Pollyanna-ish view that not one of the 13,000-plus deaths reported to VARES following vaccination as of August 20th, 2021, was vaccine-related. Not one. As was the case with Hank Aaron, CDC apparently did nothing to actively investigate any of those deaths, exonerating the vaccines instead by fiat. While unusual numbers of black celebrities were dying post-vaccination in America, an eyebrow-raising number of anti-vax political leaders were simultaneously expiring in Africa. The epidemic of untimely deaths among high-profile black African heads of state and key government ministers and physicians who opposed Bill Gates' COVAX policies provoked a wave of conspiracy theories suggesting that these men were murdered to silence dissent. The phenomenon was so striking during the first year of the pandemic that both Reuters and the British medical journal BMJ published articles seeking to explain the troubling trend. The Internet assassination speculations reached a boil following the strange murder of President Jovenel Moise of Haiti by a team of elite, well-trained Colombian mercenaries with links to United States intelligence agencies. Moïse was a vocal opponent of the WHO vaccine program. The African leaders who died suddenly after criticizing WHO vaccination policy included President John Magufoli of Tanzania, March 17, 2021. Prime Minister Hamed Bakayoko of Ivory Coast, March 10, 2021. President Pierre Nkurunziza of Burundi, January 8, 2020, and Madagascar's popular, influential, and anti-vax ex-president Didier Ignace Ratsiraka, March 28, 2021. Kenya's beloved physician Stephen Karanja, the chairman of the Kenya Catholic Doctors Association, who had exposed the WHO sterilization program in 2014, and who criticized the agency's COVID rollout in 2020, also died, reportedly of COVID, April 29, 2021. A peer-reviewed article in the BMJ titled Why Have So Many African Leaders Died of COVID? lists 17 heads of state and leading government health ministers who passed in the 12 months between February of 2020 and February of 2021. The BMJ article states that almost all of these deaths resulted in dramatic shifts in national health policies from skepticism toward strong support for vaccination in their respective countries. The article points out that the overall death rates, 1 in 33, among African elected leaders from COVID are seven times the rates for their sex and age and demographics of the general population during that time period. I do not endorse the theory that these men were murdered, nor do I dismiss such speculation out of hand. It is naive to believe that powerful men and women who threaten a trillion dollar industry allied with Western military and intelligence agencies do so without risk. I document the keen interest by the Western intelligence community and militaries in the African vaccine enterprise in Chapter 12 germ games. The historic involvement of Western intelligence agencies in coups and the murders of African leaders on behalf of their corporate clientele is well documented. I have a clear personal memory of the shocked reaction by my father and my uncle John Kennedy to the assassination of Congo's liberator Patrice Lumumba on my birthday, January 17, 1961 a week before my Uncle John Kennedy's inauguration as U.S. President. JFK regarded Lumumba as the George Washington of the Congo. U.S. and European mining companies had their eyes on the Congo's vast mineral wealth, and Lumumba, a beloved nationalist who led the Congo's liberation movement against Belgium, had sworn to deploy that wealth instead to benefit the Congolese people. We have since learned that the CIA and the Belgian intelligence agencies collaborated in Lumumba's murder. In 2002, Belgium formally apologized for its role in the assassination. CIA Director Alan Dulles, who planned to kill Lumumba with poison toothpaste, knew that my uncle had enormous affection and admiration for Lumumba. Dulles feared that JFK would interfere with the CIA's plan to liquidate the charismatic leader. Among other mischief, the CIA overthrew governments in Ghana in 1966 and Chad in 1982. Congressional investigations in the 1970s exposed the CIA's years of experimentation to develop untraceable poisons and secretive murder tools. CIA scientists, including NIH brain surgeon Maitland Baldwin, Working under MK Ultra's director Sidney Gottlieb at Fort Detrick, concocted a diabolical arsenal of assassination weaponry including beamed radio frequency radiation, pathogenic microbes, and dissipating chemicals, all intended to mimic natural deaths. This armory of toxins gave the agency capacity to assassinate uncooperative foreign leaders while avoiding suspicion. Such shenanigans suggest that it is our duty as citizens to remain alert to the times democracy might lose control of rogue intelligence agencies. Dr. Gates, I presume. Media recipients of pharma advertising dollars and Gates Foundation lucre like to characterize Gates as a public health expert. But six years after Gates summoned Dr. Fauci to his Seattle mansion, two Los Angeles Times investigative reporters, Charles Piller and Doug Smith, employed the term white man's burden to describe the catastrophic impact of Gates's medical meddling in Africa. That title suggests that Gates' efforts to rescue the dark races from disease and famine, mask all the familiar impulses for imperial control. The comprehensive study provides eloquent testimony to the lethal effect of Gates's natal arrogance on children. Pillar and Smith detail how Gates's systematic diversion of Africa's international medical spending to his high-tech, high-price and often untested vaccines, is killing babies across Africa. Gates's prioritization of vaccines has dried the stream of foreign assistance that once flowed to basic nutrition and that financed the cheap, functional medical devices that could prevent many deaths. The team at the Los Angeles Times documents how in a single Lesotho hospital One or two babies die from asphyxiation every day for lack of a $35 oxygen valve. That life-saving valve is outside the purview of Gates' $400 million annual vaccine giving, almost all of which goes to HIV, polio, TB, and malaria vaccines. Gates' regimen has also deprioritized the off-patent malaria medicines like hydroxychloroquine, that could prevent half of all malaria deaths at 12 cents per dose, as well as $4 mosquito nets that can spare a child from contracting malaria. It estimates that $3 of food and conventional medicines to each new mother could prevent 5 million child deaths annually. The Times' investigation found that Gates's programs, including those of the Global Fund and the Gavi Alliance, have had net negative consequences on public health. In fact, the Times found an inverse correlation between dollars spent by Gates' charities and declines in children's health. The nations that get the most Gates money see the worst health outcomes. By narrowing the focus of international relief aid to fund pharma solutions to a handful of celebrity diseases Gates has not only reduced public expenditures on basic equipment and life-saving food and water, he has pulled many of the best healthcare care workers and researchers away from life-saving basic care. The l a Times quotes leaders in half a dozen sub-Saharan African nations facing desperate shortages while doctors and nurses chase extravagant salaries that Gates' Global Fund pays to clinicians who provide antiretroviral drug therapy, known as ART, for HIV-AIDS patients. The resulting staff shortages have abandoned many children of AIDS survivors to more common killers, birth sepsis, diarrhea, and asphyxia. In Rwanda, the Los Angeles Times reports, nurses earning $50 to $100 a month in local clinics work beside Gates supported nurses earning $175 to $200 a month all over the country people are furious about incentives for art staff said Rachel M Cohn who is Doctors Without Borders Lesotho mission chief her organization staffs the government health clinics the Los Angeles Times concludes that Gates's obsession with vaccine preventable diseases has proportionally reduced assistance streams for nutrition, transportation, hygiene, and economic development, causing negative overall impacts on public health. Many AIDS patients have so little food that they vomit their free AIDS pills. For lack of bus fare, others cannot get to clinics that offer life-saving treatment. The Gates Foundation addresses these catastrophic impacts on broader health concerns, by blocking Africans from talking about any problem that is not susceptible to a vaccine solution. According to the report, Gates-funded vaccination programs have instructed caregivers to ignore, even discourage patients from discussing, ailments that the vaccinations cannot prevent. This is especially harmful in outposts where a visit to a clinic for a shot is the only contact some villagers have with healthcare providers for years? WHO, Gavi, and the Global Fund effectively function as ideological commissars enforcing Gates's vanity priorities. The Times reporter found that their oversight has caused key measures of societal health to have stalled at appalling levels or worsened. Gates's claim that his vaccines have saved several million lives is a reflexive trope for which he offers no proof, no validation, and no accountability. Most of the preeminent decision-makers and advisors in the Gates organization are former pharmaceutical industry moguls and regulators who not surprisingly share his pharma-centric worldview. For example, Dr. Tadataka Yamada an unsavory bully who served as president of the Gates Foundation's Global Health Program from 2005 to 2011, was the former research director for GlaxoSmithKline. He left GSK just a few steps ahead of a U.S. Senate Finance Committee, seeking to question him about multiple accusations that he conducted an intimidation campaign to threaten and silence prominent doctors exploring the British drug maker for knowingly killing some 83,000 Americans with its blockbuster diabetes drug, Avandia. Gates knew of Yamada's sordid conduct because the Senate committee staffers sent his foundation a letter requesting Yamada submit to questioning. A 2007 article by one of these staffers, Alicia Mundy, describes how Yamada repeatedly lied to his interrogators. Yamada's successor at BMGF, Trevor Mundell was an executive at both Novartis and Pfizer. The foundation's chief communications officer, Kate James, worked at GSK for almost 10 years. Penny Heaton worked for Merck and Novartis before Gates named her as director of vaccine development at BMGF. So it's not surprising that Gates' success metrics rarely measure better health outcomes, but only the number of vaccines administered and the number of pills distributed and consumed. Many believe that the Global Fund's tight remit is increasingly becoming a straitjacket, complains a 2007 editorial on the Global Fund in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. The failure to support basic care as comprehensively as vaccines and research is a blind spot for the Gates Foundation, said Paul Farmer, recipient of a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Fellowship and founder of Partners in Health, which has received Gates Foundation funding for research and training. It doesn't surprise me that as someone who has made his fortune on developing a novel technology, Bill Gates would look for magic bullets in vaccines and medicines, Farmer said. But if we don't have a solid delivery system, this work will be thwarted. He added, that's something that's going to be hard for the big foundations. They treat tuberculosis, they don't treat poverty. African public health leaders protest that Gates refuses to finance traditional medical supplies that spell life or death in African clinics. Lesotho's health minister, Empura Matlapeng, now executive vice president of the Clinton Foundation, told The Times that a $7 million annual donation would allow her to raise the pay of every government health professional by two-thirds, sufficient to retain most of them. But this sort of banal need bores Mr. Gates. His global fund has poured $59 million into Lesotho to advance his priorities, which are the high-profit vaccines and drugs that enrich his pharma partners. Dr. Fauci and Gates's obsession with AIDS is great for companies like Merck and Glaxo. With which the two men partner, but it's been a lousy deal for Africans. Like Dr. Fauci, Gates raises expectations yet takes no responsibility and offers no convincing proof that his schemes have had a beneficial impact on morbidities, public health, or quality of life. There are meager signs of tangible benefits to the poor. Instead, Every effort to measure the health outcomes of Gates's interventions has exposed them as cataclysmic for their beneficiaries. In 2017, the Danish government commissioned a study of health outcomes among African children who received WHO's flagship DTP vaccine, the world's most popular inoculation. They found that vaccinated girls had ten times the death rate compared to unvaccinated girls. The investigation by the Los Angeles Times found that Botswana, a favored target of Gates's and his corporate amigo's largesse, has seen few tangible benefits from the attention. Botswana is a stable, well-governed democracy with a relatively high living standard and a small population but one of the world's highest HIV infection rates. In 2000, the Gates Foundation partnered with Merck to launch a $100 million pilot program in Botswana to showcase how mass AIDS treatment with vaccines, patented antivirals, and prevention could eliminate AIDS in Africa. The pilot's disastrous failure instead became a parable for how Gates' obsession with expensive pharmaceuticals is killing Africans. The project produced no reduction in HIV rates. By 2005, the virus had spread to a quarter of all adults. All those deadly retrovirals and vaccines from Tony Fauci's little shop of horrors exacted a fearsome toll on Botswana's mothers and infants. The rate of pregnancy-related maternal deaths nearly quadrupled, and child mortality rose dramatically. Health economist Dean Jameson, formerly editor of the Gates Foundation-funded reference book, Disease Control Priorities in Developing Countries, acknowledged that the Gates Foundation's narrow obsession with AIDS drugs may have accelerated death and illness in Botswana by drawing the nation's top medical professionals away from primary care and child health. They have an opportunity to double or triple their salaries by working on AIDS, Jameson said. Maybe the health ministry replaces them when they leave government service. Maybe not. The Gates Foundation has poured billions into sub Saharan Africa through the Global Fund to finance vaccines and antivirals for AIDS and TB treatment for 3.9 million people. But one AIDS patient, Moleko, told the Times, the clinics don't have what we need. Food. Majubali Matibali, the nurse at Queen Two Hospital who gives Moleko her pills, wept in frustration as she told the Times reporter that four out of five of her patients ate fewer than three meals a day. Most of them, she said, are dying of hunger. In Lesotho and Rwanda, dozens of patients described hunger so brutal that nausea prevented them from keeping their anti-AIDS pills down. Nathibali said that Gates's Global Fund was out of touch. They have their computers and nice offices and are comfortable, she said, nervous about speaking bluntly, but they are not coming down to our level. We've got to tell the truth so something will be done. Dr. Jennifer Furin, the Lesotho Director for Partners in Health, a Boston-based NGO, made a similar complaint. By giving African patients medicine without food, she said, you're consigning that person to death because they are poor. Antipathy Toward Locally Controlled Health Care Systems Dr. Francis Omaswa, Special Advisor for Human Resources at the WHO, estimates that Gates' spending could be five times more beneficial if he directed his philanthropy toward addressing poverty and supporting existing health systems this is the most common critique among knowledgeable public health experts according to global justice now the bmgf's heavy focus on developing new vaccines detracts from other more vital health priorities such as building resilient health systems unfortunately the idea of building local institutions to support democracy and public interest is inconsistent with Gates's technology-based approach to public health. As Dr. David Legg explained to The Gray Zone, Gates has got a mechanistic view of global health in terms of looking for silver bullets. All of the things he supports are largely framed as silver bullets. That means that major issues that have been identified in the World Health Assembly are not being addressed, including in particular the social determinants of health and the development of health systems. University of Toronto public health professor Anne-Emmanuel Byrne wrote in 2005 that the Gates Foundation had a narrowly conceived understanding of health as the product of technical interventions divorced from economic, social, and political contexts. The Gates Foundation has long championed private sector involvement in and private sector profit-making from global health, Byrne told The Gray Zone. One of Gavi's senior representatives even reported that Bill Gates often told him in private conversations that he is vehemently against health systems because it is a complete waste of money. Katerini Storing, researcher at Oslo's Center for Development and Environment, writes that a Gavi staffer told her that the Foundation was a very loud vocal voice, saying that we do not believe in the strengthening of health systems. A former Gavi employee and HSS health systems strengthening proponent recounted how he and his colleagues used to roll down the HSS posters when Bill Gates came to visit the Gavi headquarters in Geneva because he is known to hate this part of Gavi's work. Gates's antipathy toward public health systems reflects a pathological, almost bigoted contempt for African institutions and science, Storing's report also notes. Gates's patterns of funding reflect his bias toward white Western institutions and his hostility toward indigenous, community-based African solutions. Lindsay Magoey argues that a commitment to true equity should entail offering money directly to capable health teams based in the global south, better resourcing of their universities, their access to scientific research, and their ability to publish more extensively leading journals. Gates seems impervious to the importance of cultivating local leadership, institutions, and talent. His giving patterns reinforce the colonial architecture that keeps the authority to call the shots outside Africa. Investigating the Gates Foundation's global health spending in 2009, British public health policy expert David McCoy found that of 659 grants BMGF awarded to non-governmental or for-profit organizations, 560 went to organizations in high-income countries, mainly in the U.S., only 37 grants went to NGOs based in low- or middle-income countries. Similarly, of the 231 grants BMGF awarded to universities, only 12 went to universities based in developing regions. Lindsay Magoey points out that the very limited direct funding in these countries automatically excludes scientists and program managers who best understand the problems from contributing creative solutions. In his book, The White Man's Burden, economist William Easterly, who co-directs the Development Research Institute at New York University, asks, Who chose the human right of universal treatment of AIDS over other human rights? The answer to that question, of course, is Bill Gates. Bill Gates's continent-wide experiment on the African population is a long, tragic joke. The Times reporters deliver its devastating punchline. 2006 data, the most recent available, show a paradoxical relationship between GAVI funding in Africa and child mortality. Overall, child mortality improved more often in nations that received smaller-than-average Gavi grants per capita. In seven nations that received greater-than-average funding, child mortality rates worsened. Neutralizing the Press Pillar and Smith's Los Angeles Times expose on Gates's calamitous African adventure is an artifact of an expired era. Investigative journalism of this probative quality is a quaint relic of a time when editors and producers still permitted their reporters and correspondents to express skepticism toward Gates. Even before the open censorship of the COVID epoch, U.S. media reports about Gates's charities operated in the narrow range between obsequious fawning and adulation. This is no accident. By 2006, The tsunami of advertising revenues from pharmaceutical firms, about $4.8 billion annually, had already drowned out most of the voices of vaccine dissent in mainstream media. By 2020, those expenditures grew to $9.53 billion. After the devastating Los Angeles Times piece, Gates moved aggressively to neutralize the once-independent press with compromising grants that struggling news organizations couldn't refuse. An August 2020 exposé by Tim Schwab in the Columbia Journalism Review showed how Gates dispensed at least 250 million dollars in grants to media outlets including NPR, Public Television, PBS, The Guardian, The Independent, BBC, Al Jazeera, ProPublica, The Daily Telegraph, The Atlantic, the Texas Tribune, Gannett, Washington Monthly, Le Monde, the Financial Times, the National Journal, Univision, Medium, and the New York Times to dampen journalistic appetites for, well, journalism. In fact, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation finances the Guardian's entire global development section, that shrewd investment, presumably earned the couple this February 14, 2017, Guardian headline, How Bill and Melinda Gates Helped Save 122 Million Lives and What They Want to Solve Next. The Guardian calls Gates and his partner, Warren Buffett, Superman and Batman. The Foundation has also invested millions in journalism training and in researching effective ways of crafting media narratives to support Gates' global ambitions. Gates, for example, gave grants totaling nearly $1.5 million from 2015 through 2019 to the Center for Investigative Reporting, apparently to discourage investigative reporting. According to the Seattle Times, experts coached in Gates-funded programs write columns that appear in media outlets from the New York Times to the Huffington Post while digital portals blur the line between journalism and spin. The Gates Foundation frequently hosts strategic media partners' meetings at its headquarters in Seattle. Representatives from The New York Times, The Guardian, NBC, NPR, and The Seattle Times all attended a 2013 convocation. The aim of the event, wrote Tom Paulson, a Seattle-based reporter, was to improve the narrative of media coverage of global aid and development, highlighting good news stories rather than tales of waste or corruption. That same year, the BMGF gave marketing colossus Ogilvy & Mather, a global public relations firm, a $100,000 grant for a project titled Aid is Working, Tell the World. Subsequent articles in The Nation, reported that Gates had invested in a retinue of companies positioned to mint windfall profits from the COVID crisis and documented the reluctance of players in the philanthropic donor community and key charities to criticize their self-serving arrangements. Fearful of his prowess and reputation for vendetta, leading charities keep their mouths shut about Gates' recipe for leavening his altruism with profiteering. They call this omerta, the bill chill. Gates has also made large strategic investments in Pointer and the International Network of Fact-Checking Organizations, which dutifully debunks virtually every public statement that seems critical of Gates, whether accurate or not. In 2008, the communications chief for PBS NewsHour, Rob Flynn, explained that there are not a heck of a lot of things you could touch in global health these days that would not have some kind of Gates tentacle. This was around the time when the Foundation gave NewsHour $3.5 million to establish a dedicated production unit to report on important global health issues. That kind of moolah purchased a lot of goodwill from the Fourth Estate. Jeff Bezos's Washington Post called Gates the champion of science backed solutions. The New York Times gushes that he is the most interesting man in the world. Time magazine dubbed him Master of the Universe. Forbes calls Gates Savior of the World, who set the standard for a billionaire good citizen. Looking on admiringly, editors of fashion magazine Vogue wondered why isn't Bill Gates running the coronavirus task force? Ignoring the fact that Gates never graduated from college, much less medical school, mainstream media outlets unanimously parrot BBC's assessment that Gates is a public health expert and ridicule those who question whether the whole world should take his self-serving advice on lockdowns, masks, and vaccines. In just the month of April 2020, while the virus and lockdowns were severely impacting the United States, Gates and Fauci did tag-team appearances on CNN, CNBC, Fox, PBS, BBC, CBS, MSNBC, The Daily Show, and The Ellen DeGeneres Show, reinforcing their self-serving messages about lockdowns and vaccines. None of those reporters mentioned the fact that the quarantines that Gates was cheerleading on their networks have increased Gates's wealth by $22 billion over 12 months. And Gates's efforts to promote his contrary narrative claims only exacerbate their limitations. Gates's emphasis on conditional lending, corporate partnerships, top-down control, high-tech cookie-cutter solutions, and patent privileges tends to favor wealthy nations and multinational corporations. These are just a few of the ways in which current development policies are failing the Global South. If aid flows are working well, asks Magoey, why do they need a masterful PR campaign to convey that message effectively? Many observers on the left and right suggest that the problem isn't a marketing failure. It's a failure with the underlying product. Aid, they argue, is not working. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments, end notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.